Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 12. But although he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they did not believe on him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my word has that which judges him, the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. This is a summary, I believe, of how people responded to the ministry of Christ. How did people respond to Christ? The first way that we saw they responded to him is here in verse 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe on him. I've called this the response of willful rejection. It's, it's amazing to read that verse. Although he had done so many signs or miracles, the word sign in the New Testament in the Gospels means a miracle that points in a direction, as in, hey, I'm Jesus Christ. This miracle is pointing to the fact of me being God, of me being the Savior. Although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe. believe. John Phillips And his commentary summarizes this truth when he says this, This disbelief was no accident. It was deliberately fostered. They deliberately, persistently, stubbornly tore up his credentials. He performed miracle after miracle, day after day. He demonstrated his deity in countless ways, showing his lordship over the processes and forces of nature, over all kinds of sickness and disability, over hordes of evil spirits, and over death itself. But unbelief in the face of such proof had to be deliberately fostered. Another commentator put it this way. In light of all the evidence that Jesus had produced, 
Their unbelief was illogical and irrational. The light of the world had come into their midst and they chose, they chose the darkness. The original Greek here in this verse says something like this. I mean, it would, if you expanded the translation, they kept on disbelieving. They kept on disbelieving. Once you have heard the truth and been exposed to genuine Christianity, unbelief becomes a choice, not an accident. We often look, those of us who are Christians, at folks who don't believe, even though they've heard the truth over and over and over, and we assume we have done something wrong in the communication of the truth. And that's not true. If you have heard the truth and chosen not to believe, you need to be honest enough with yourself to say that. I had choose not to believe. I've met people like that. I'm not a Christian. I know the gospel. I don't want to believe. It scares me. And it scares me especially because what the rest of this text is going to say. There's ample evidence for the validity of Christianity, starting with its 2,000-year existence, connected back to the, the uh, faith of the saints in the Old Testament as well, uh, the Bible being the bestseller since printing has been invented, countless changed lives, the accuracy of the Bible in describing the condition of mankind. And above all, in my thinking, is this. No other religion, no other way of life, no other philosophy brings the positive change, the absolute and consistent change to life that Christianity brings. And yet in the face of that, people choose to ignore the facts. Don't confuse me with the facts. These folks had Jesus Christ himself preaching and demonstrating his power, and they chose to disbelief. Well, what was the result of that disbelief? Look at verse 38. They disbelieved that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, saying this, Lord, who has believed our report, and to who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah the prophet prophesied that people would not listen to Christ. Now, he didn't fully understand everything he was talking about. The apostle John, in the retrospective, looks back to the ministry of Christ and reads the Old Testament and says, man, that wasn't just talking about Isaiah. That was talking about the ministry of Christ as well. Isaiah's mission from God is summarized in this part of the book of Isaiah when God said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing but do not understand, keep on seeing but do not perceive, Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The prophet Isaiah was sent to Israel in a time when they were still under their own authority. They had their own king. There was times of righteousness and times of wickedness, depending on who the king was. And Isaiah was sent in that time frame, in the later years of the, of the nation of Israel, to say, get right with God. Get right with God. Follow what he's told you. But in doing so, God says, when you go to preach, here's going to be the result. 
their ears are going to just get stopped up and they're not going to listen. God said, the result of your preaching will be disbelief. You know, I, I, if somebody told me that when I entered the ministry, I'd say, I, you know, maybe there's some other way I can serve the Lord. I understand that every week there are people sitting here who don't believe God's truth. But I understand that there are people who do, and that encourages me. But for Isaiah, his primary ministry was to speak, essentially to speak judgment from God. He was to go out and preach the truth, and the result would be disbelief. Jesus Christ preached, and many people chose not to believe. That was the result of his preaching, the result of his miracle working. I mean, there are many people in evangelical Christianity today which, who believe that miracles are what will prove the power of God, and, 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 and they think, boy, if Jesus Christ would just come right here and heal some people, all kinds of folks would accept Christ. They would believe in him, but that's not what happened. He demonstrated who he was through, the, through his miracles, through his character, through his teaching, through fitting all of that, all of those qualifications from the Old Testament. And the result was, they said, we don't want it. And this was not a surprise to God. God knew this was going to happen. And so the result, verse 38 says, you know, Who's believed our report? Who's, who's listened and who's believed this message? And the, the inferred answer is no one. So what does verse 39 say? Therefore, they could not believe. Because Isaiah said this. Now, if you go back and read the words, we just read the words from Isaiah, and they don't read exactly like this. This is the Apostle John, by God's inspiration, saying, look at what God said. Here's what it means. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. God did not make these people disbelieve his word and his son Jesus Christ, but he knew that they would not believe. He knew in the time of Isaiah, and he knew in the time of Christ. And so the result of their disbelief was, from God, a judicial blindness. What does that mean? When we use the word judicial in theology, we're referring to a choice that God makes, not some natural result. If you go out and walk in the middle of the street, you may get hit with a car. It's the natural result of your foolish choice. But God could decide that some illness is going to befall you with no natural cause whatsoever. It is the choice of God. These people chose not to believe, and so at that point, God stepped in and said, I won't let you believe. Does that, does that shock you at all? Does that scare you at all? One of the authors I read said this, unbelief is self-propagating. A sobering Old Testament illustration is that of Pharaoh, you know, when Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Pharaoh, who continued to harden his heart against God's people until there came a time when God hardened it for him. 
The Jews here are now guilty of a similar behavior. A time comes in the lives of those who will not repent when at last they cannot repent. Do you know why we have dandelions in the Northwest? Because somebody, either from Great Britain or Europe, imported them here way back in the immigrant days because they ate the greens. Thanks. (laughs) Dandelions are self-propagating. All you have to do is plant one, and you'll have two, and a dozen, and so on. Unbelief doesn't stay static. It grows by God's judicial hand into blindness. Unbelief becomes blindness under the hand of God. God never sends anyone to hell. But there are, in God's economy, There is a time when he says, are you going to choose to disbelieve? Then I'm going to take my hands off you completely, and you can just go right on your way. And there's no turning back. The similar thing is spoken about by the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. So so when they had appointed him a day, this was a day for him to, uh, to share his testimony and to preach about Christ, to give his defense. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. That's part of what we're going to see here in a minute. Some believe, some don't. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. This is the Apostle Paul talking to a bunch of of Jewish folks, or at least religiously Jewish folks, and he says, Isaiah said this was going to happen. He said that you folks would not believe this message of God. And so he said, therefore, God is going to put a blindness on you, and he's going to send this message to the Gentiles. Isaiah 55, 6 instructs us how we ought to respond to this truth. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. I don't know. I don't know when, if, or how somebody has been blinded by God to the truth. I don't know that. That's why I keep preaching the message. But according to this scripture, there can arise a time in a person's life when God says, If you're going to keep choosing to disbelieve, I'm going to stop giving you the opportunity to believe. That's a scary thing. Willful rejection was a huge part of the response of the people 
that Christ talked to. There's another response, though, from the people who listened to him. And it's in verse 42. Nevertheless, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in Christ. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. The second response to Christ is what I've called tentative belief. There's a prophecy about belief. It's included in this truth that was given to Isaiah chapter 6, or to Isaiah in chapter 6. He says, Isaiah, go out and preach. The people are going to reject you, but yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it's cut down, so the holy, holy seed shall be in its stump. He says this, there's going to always be some people who believe. There's going to be this remnant of folks. And, and, and I believe that that is part of the way John is writing this, uh, this review, this retrospective of the life of Christ. He said these people openly rejected Christ, but some of them believed. Some of them believed. There will always be people coming to faith in Christ, no matter how difficult or oppressive society gets. Jesus said the gates of hell could not prevail against the, uh, the body of Christ or the kingdom of Christ. There will always be people coming to faith. But here he talks clearly about the price of belief. Yes, they're going to believe, but look what happened. They believed, but they would not confess. The word confess in the scripture means to agree We're told to confess our sin. In other words, we're told to agree with God that our deeds are sinful when they are sinful. That's what it means to confess. If you're a Christian, it means that you confess Christ. You agree with God's assessment of who Christ is, and you say that publicly. Romans chapter 10 says that with the heart we believe unto righteousness, and with the mouth we confess unto salvation. Now, I'm I'm not saying that salvation is a two-step process. What the scripture seems to say is real believers, genuine believers, believe with the heart and are willing to say so with their mouth. These folks were secret agents. They were hiding their belief because they would be put out of the synagogue. The synagogue was the place of worship. It was not the temple itself. It was a a gathering place I hate to use the word church, but it would be the equivalent in that time frame where they would come and read the scripture and pray and have religious discussions and so on. And when he says here that the the fear they were under was being put out of the synagogue, it means more than just, if you think today, well, they get kicked out of the church, well, I'll go down the road to the other church. It means a little more than that to these folks. The synagogue was their primary hub of their social of their, uh, of their financial life, of their legal life. It, it was the hub of their life. And to be put out would mean to be excommunicated from the community, not just from the worshiping group, if you will. And uh, it meant to be seen as a heretic. And for these leaders, rulers, these are people that are on the top of the stack in terms of the organization, in terms of respect, It would mean going from being in the in crowd to being an outsider. 
It would mean no longer being a shaker and a mover. It meant that no one would care about their opinions anymore. It meant really losing their life as they would define it. If you're an outspoken Christian today, there are some prices to pay. Sometimes the New York Times or folks like that will say that us fundamentalists are essentially equal to Islamic fundamentalists. Now, nothing could be farther from the truth, but those kind of things are said about us. People certainly, if they know our views, will call us narrow-minded. They call us unthinking, ignorant, as though we don't really study the issues. There have been college professors in recent days who have been denied tenure, which means If you don't know what that means, it means to be given a permanent job from which you almost cannot be fired in the rest of your college life. They have been denied tenure because of their views, which were sort of Christian. I don't even mean fully, fully Christian, but sort of as in intelligent design when it comes to creation or something like that. For sure, Christians are subjected to a greater scrutiny. Oh, you're a Christian. Why did you say this or do this or do that or whatever? And there's all the scrutiny that's applied to us, which, you know, should not be a a bad thing, but it is a hard thing at times. There is a price to pay for being a real Christian. Some of these leaders of Israel, Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they accepted Christ as Savior. They believed in him as Savior, but they would not go public. Warren Wiersbe put it this way. It was a costly thing to be excommunicated, and these secret believers wanted the best of both worlds. They wanted to be in the religious Jewish community and be thought of as a wonderful person, and they also wanted to believe in Jesus, had their feet in both worlds. Elmer Towns, in commenting on this passage, rightly observes this. There's a problem with secret belief. The problem with secret discipleship is that it amounts to a contradiction in terms. Sooner or later, either the secrecy will destroy the discipleship or the discipleship will destroy the secrecy. You cannot remain a secret believer. Now, a couple of the people spoken of right here who came to faith, a couple of those leaders, we find out that their discipleship overcame their secrecy eventually. After the, uh, after the crucifixion of Christ, he's hanging on the cross. After this, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, the Roman governor, that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also became, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as was the custom of the Jews to bury. You can't get much more public than going up to Golgotha, to Crucifixion Hill, to Death Row, probably with some servants, because these well-off men would not have done this work themselves, I don't think, and they would have said, take him off the cross. I mean, if you're the guy standing there and it's your servant, or if it's you taking the nails out, 
You can't get much more public than that. And you're taking him to bury, and other scripture tells us they laid him in a brand new tomb that belonged to one of these guys. You don't get much more public than that. And so these folks came out, if you will. It's, it, it's a rough day when immoral people are out of the closet and Christians are in the closet. But that's the day in which they lived. And they said, we're afraid. But they came to a point where they said, we cannot be afraid anymore. Are you a secret believer? Oh, no, Pastor Dave, I'm here at church. Are you a secret believer at work? I have a, a friend that's a missionary, Steve Prelgovesk. He's down in Costa Rica, I believe it is, or Puerto Rico, excuse me, Puerto Rico. And when he was going to Bible college, him and his friend that was also a Bible college student, wherever it was they worked, someplace like UPS or something like that, they'd go in there every day and, and they'd do like a comedy routine every day. They were great talkers, you know, and they'd, they were joking, everybody laughing, everybody loved those guys, you know. And one day he said, you know what? Everybody loves us, but I never talk about the Lord. And so he started talking about the Lord. And the love went away. <laughs> you can be a real nice guy, a real nice gal, and still be a secret believer out in the world. And, and I'm not saying you've got to stand on the street corner and condemn people to hell. That's not what God wants. But the question is, do you admit... <laughs> To being a Christian, real believers, real believers always come out into the open. But those who do not come out into the open may very well not be truly saved. Listen to this. This is Jesus talking to Matthew, but he who received the seed on the stony ground. He's, he's in, given this parable of the seed and the sower, and the sower went out and he scattered the seed of the gospel, the truth of Christ, and he scatters the seed, and there's different kinds of ground and different kinds of hearers. And he who received the seed on the stony ground, this is he who hears the word and he immediately receives it with joy, and yet he has no root in himself but endures only for a while for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word. Immediately he stumbles. Some secret believers are not true Christians. They, they believe to an extent, but they come to a spot where somebody says, you're a Christian? And immediately they stumble. Revelation 21.8 talks about the people that are going to go to hell. And one of the categories, I mean, there's, the categories are in there that we would expect, murderers, adulterers, and so on. And of course, what God is saying is, is those who have not had their sin forgiven. You know, it, it, a murderer can come to faith in Christ and go to heaven, but the, what he's saying there is, here's a whole list of sins. These things will send you to hell if they aren't forgiven. Do you know that one of the words in that list is cowardly? Cowardly. You can go to hell for being a coward? Well, if your cowardice keeps you from truly believing in Christ because you care so much about what other people will think of you, then yes, that kind of cowardice can send you to hell. Ultimately, friend, there is no such thing as a secret believer. Real believers get baptized as an evidence of their faith. 
One of my favorite times in church is baptism. We're going to have one next week. We know one person will be baptized. Ingrid may not make it because of illness. We're still waiting to see about that. But I love to see a believer say, I'm, I, I'm a believer. That's what baptism is. To say, I believe in Christ. And I'm not ashamed to be in public and say so. Real believers share their faith in Christ. When the opportunities come, they take them. Real believers stand against sin and for righteousness. Real believers defend Christ and they defend real Christianity. They don't defend everything in Christianity. Are you in the closet? I hope not. These folks were in the closet. Some of them came out. You know, they came to that point where they said, I can't hide it anymore. And if that day hasn't come for you, I hope it will real soon. How did people respond to Christ? Willful rejection, tentative belief, and then foolish disregard. Look with me at verse 44. Then Jesus cried out and said this. And I believe that this, again, is a summary of his teaching. All of these teachings are recorded elsewhere in the Gospels. But John sort of pulls it together. He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. It is foolish to disregard Christ because he speaks for God the Father. People might like to say they believe in God, but they don't believe in Jesus. That is not an acceptable choice. Jesus said, look, I'm here on the Father's behalf. I'm saying what God wants me to say, and so you should not reject me. The so-called Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong to think that they can ignore Christ and believe in the Father. It will bring them to ruin. The modern-day Jews are wrong to dismiss Christ as not being from the Father. The Muslims are wrong in their belief that Jesus was only a prophet and not the Savior from God. And you're wrong, friend, if you think you can worship God without believing in Christ as your Savior. Jesus said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. It's foolish to disregard Christ because he speaks for the Father. It's also foolish to disregard Christ because he alone brings what we cannot live without. Look at verse 46. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not walk in darkness. Everything Christ said was for our benefit to bring light into our lives. Ultimately, that comes through faith in him. He says here, I have come so that you won't abide in the darkness. That clearly infers that we are in darkness until we come to faith in him. He says, you don't have to be in darkness anymore. Before we know Christ, we are living in the darkness of sin. Sin is living in any way that is contrary to God's desire. 
Sin is the natural path that every human being walks on. Sin is the source of broken human relationships. Sin is the source of anxiety, worry, and fear. Sin is the source of hatred, jealousy, and selfishness. Sin is the reason that marriages end in heartbreak. Sin is the reason that wars are started. Only God's explanation of the world that we are sinful creatures and out of our sinfulness we do sinful deeds, only God's explanation of the world fits what we see in the world. There was a time in this country when people believed that mankind was born with the spark of good in him. And if we just treat that mankind properly, if we give him you know, better health and better education, and, and, and the whole world believed this ideology, and, and mankind was just getting better and better, and there's a little saying, in fact, every day and in every way, we're just better and better. And they believed that right up until World War I broke out. It was a great time of liberal belief. It started in Europe and it came to America. Liberal religious belief. And all of a sudden they looked at the ruthlessness of mankind. And they had to change their definition somehow. Now lots of people still believe that we're born with this little spark of good, but it just doesn't show. It doesn't show anywhere. Even in those who are privileged to have the best education and the best health and the best possible upbringing. We need the light of Christ. Only Jesus can dispel the darkness of sin. Only Jesus can dispel the darkness of sin because only Jesus can remove our sin and replace it with the clear, bright vision for life that comes from his righteousness. Friend, if you're walking in darkness, you don't need to. Walking in darkness, you do not need to. You can come to the light. It's an old hymn that says, Come to the light, tis shining for thee. Sweetly the light has dawned upon me. Once I was blind, but now I can see. The light of the world is Jesus. Jesus says, I'm here to bring light to your life. And why people reject that, I do not know. Friend, if you're walking in the darkness, come to the light. It's foolish to disregard Christ because his words will determine your eternal destiny. Look at uh, John 12, verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me does not reject, does not receive my words. He has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I, what I speak. In Matthew uh, chapter 7, we read these words of Christ. 
Many will say to me in that day, in the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, done a lot of religious things? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness or sin. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. I read that familiar story. We've all sung that little song as kids in church, you know, the wise man built his... The wise man didn't just build his house upon the rock, he built it on the words of Christ. And Jesus says here, look, I'm not going to stand up and have some capricious judgment based on whether I like you or not. The words that I have spoken, that will be the judgment point in your life. And this wasn't something new that Jesus made up. This goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. I will raise up for them a prophet. He's talking, God is talking to Moses. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and he will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. God says there's going to come a day when people will stand before him if they have chosen not to believe in Christ, and he will say, why did you not do what I said you should do? Warren Wiersbe summarized this uniquely when he said, it's an awesome thought that the unbeliever will face at the judgment every bit of scripture he has ever read or heard. And one of the great observations that I read this week from Arthur Pink said this, God has not given an invitation for men to act on at their pleasure, but a commandment which they may disobey at their imminent peril. When I, when I watch those cop shows on TV, or I see some news things about police getting in a conflagration with people. I, I think, why don't those people go along? It would just come out better for them in the end. Even if the cop is wrong, prove him wrong in the end, you know. But did you know there's such a thing as a lawful order given by a police officer that you are bound to obey? If he gives you a lawful order, you cannot choose to disobey that, except at your peril. This is a lawful order from God. God created us, and he said, listen, I'm telling you, you need to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. He says this for us very clearly in 1 John 3, 23. This is his commandment, not his suggestion, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. We need to understand that yes, it is a gracious invitation from God in which he says, come and believe, it'll be great for you. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you because it's light, it's a light burden and I will be with you. And, and, and yes, it's a gracious call of God, but ultimately it's a demand of God. 
At the judgment seat, God is not going to say, well, what do you think? He's going to say, did you believe? No. That's it. This is a command from God, not a suggestion. My wife's nephew has a gun rack in his pickup truck with fishing poles on it. He was never a Boy Scout, but he believes in the Boy Scout motto, always prepared to fish. Three, excuse me, thank you. Jeff, tell me I got to hold three fingers up for the Boy Scout motto. Always prepared to fish. He does not want to waste an opportunity to fish. Boy, he'll get up early in the morning, go fishing before he goes to work. He doesn't want to miss the opportunity to catch that big fish. Friend, God has brought you here today to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, to hear that he died for your sins and that he wants to give light to your life and that he commands you to believe. And I hope you will not waste this opportunity today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your gracious communication of your truth. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to believe in you. Thank you for the opportunity you gave me to believe when I was a young boy. And thank you for the opportunity you're giving people to believe today. Father, thank you for the call that you've issued today to believers to come out and be open and plain and and dedicated to Christ their Savior. Father, do your work in our hearts as you will. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360-384-3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's word will give you hope for life.